Galatians chapter 3. We're continuing in our study of the book of Galatians in a series called How to Be a Good Christian and Other Religious Nonsense. We're about halfway through that series now. We're going to finish up chapter 3 and dip into chapter 4. The title of this message is The Abba Experience. The Abba Experience. I got to give a bit of a disclaimer as we're going to be looking at these verses. Uh, The last few verses of chapter 3 particularly and some of the verses of chapter 4 bring up some issues that we could spend a lot of time talking about. Issues of of roles and and marriage and the church are sort of hinted at a little bit, or at least a lot of people think so. Uh, The issue of baptism. There's just a lot of different theological things that that pop up in this text that we don't have the time to cover in this series, okay? So that's a disappointment for me as an exegete, as a student in the Bible, as a teacher and preacher. I want to go into all those little things. You know I do. Um, But we're I really think the spirit has something particular to say to the church from this text today. So I'm going to try to be obedient to that. I always post my notes online. Okay. Sunday morning before you come to church, my notes are posted online for you to get and bring and follow through. So it helps your note taking. I've posted an expanded version of those notes online that deal more in depth with some of these issues that we won't be dealing with in the text. So if we go through something, you're like, why didn't he talk about how come he didn't mention? I know, I know it's killing me too, but we just got to do what we got to do. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for what you've done for us. We were far off in our wickedness and our rebellion, and you've brought us perfectly near in your work on the cross. And we just ask that that become real to every person here today. People for whom that is brand new, people for whom that is old news perhaps, we just ask that it would be real. Jesus, you'd be nearer to us and the love of God more real to us than anything else on earth and that that would truly shape, transform who we are and how we do life. We ask together the Holy Spirit, you'd please anoint me to teach and preach. I want to be faithful to who you are and to your scripture and we want to be changed people. So Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. We ask you together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the book of Galatians, we have been learning about the gospel the good news that we are made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, that we don't have to do anything in and of ourselves. We don't have to perform well. We don't have to clean up our act. We don't have to be on a trajectory toward a better person. We are made right with God, accepted by God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and no other reason. We, we believe that to be true, don't we? We're, we're getting more and more convinced of that truth as we study this book. But the question now that the text touches on is this, though we believe it to be true, can we experience it to be true? Can we experience the truth of the gospel and how it brings us in, into God's love? Which would beg the question, you know, should we experience, should we feel God's love because some people have an aversion to that. You know, some people don't trust their feelings and we we shouldn't ultimately trust our feelings. But let me just say this. God is real. God is alive. God is relational. God made you in his image. Part of that means that you feel and you have emotions as God does. And if there is anything in the world that we should feel and experience, it's the love of God. It should never be merely a cerebral thing or just a set of beliefs or reference that we subscribe to. 
It should be real, actual experience of God's love in our lives. And so how do we do that? That's hard for some of us. A lot of us believe these things, but have never really experienced these things. And, and the answer is, is simple, and we'll try to unpack it today. It's simple, but it's not necessarily easy. It's to reorder our lives so that our lives are in Christ and through the Spirit. Okay? That's how we experience the love of God, to reorder our lives so that they're in Christ and through the Spirit. So we'll begin talking about what it means that our lives are in the Son, in Christ, that theological truth and how it shapes how we think about ourselves and how we imagine God thinks about us. And we'll end by realizing that the job of the Holy Spirit is to allow us, cause us to make us to work in us so that we do experience what we have in Christ. The Spirit is to, to turn our position in Christ into passion for God. So let's read the last few verses of chapter 3, and then we'll talk about it a bit, starting in verse 26 of Galatians 3. It says, For you are all children of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Okay, this is one of the most rich passages in all of scripture having to do with our identity. Okay, our identity. So I want us to break these down. I I want us to get this and begin to try as Christians to locate who we are and therefore how we think and act and feel. Okay, in relation to Christ. So if we just look at the first verse, verse 26, I brought my little pointer today, which I love. Here's you, notice you. For you are children of God. You are all children of God. Identity. Okay, the theology, the truth that makes that possible is through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice in Christ Jesus. Don't miss the preposition. In Christ Jesus. God is not a universal father. Okay, a lot of people say, well, we're all children of God. No, no. Romans 5 says you're enemies of God because of your rebellion. Until you put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done upon the cross, then we become children of God. Brand new identity, brand new self-perception, brand new relationship with God. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, only in Christ. But there is core identity issue. Who am I? I'm a child of God because of what Jesus has done for me. The, The next verse, verse 27 All who, okay, that's you, that's us. All who have been united, okay, another identity issue, with Christ have put on Christ. Notice the prepositions again, with and put on. All who have been united with Christ have put on Christ. Who am I? I'm a child of God who has been united with Christ. I am in Christ and I put on Christ. Okay, the next verse having to do with our identity. Verse 28. You, there you are again. You are all one. You, plural. You are all one in Christ Jesus. There is so much that divides us. 
So much that separates us from the way that we look, to our background, to our status, so on and so forth. But, but the governing identity for the Christian is we are all one. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Apart from Christ Jesus, we're in all sorts of different directions. Who am I? I'm a child of God in Christ who has been united with Christ I've put on Christ and therefore others who are the same because of Christ, I am united with them. We are all one in Christ Jesus. The next verse having to do with our identity, verse 29. You belong. Think of how beautiful those words are. You belong. One of the the most basic needs of humanity is belonging. That is why God ordained that we are born into families where we're supposed to belong. And that's certainly gone awry, but one of the most basic needs is to belong. One of the most destructive things in our lives is is when we don't feel that we belong anywhere or to anyone. You belong. You belong to Christ, the sovereign king of the universe, the glorious one, the beautiful one, the perfect one, the one who spoke all things into existence and governs all things. You belong to him. Who are you? You are a child of God who has been united with Christ together with others, one in Christ, and we belong to Christ. This settles the issue of identity. Well, who do I think I am? How do I perceive myself and think about myself and therefore act out? And how do I imagine God feels about me? That's our identity. Children of God, united with Christ, one in Christ. We belong to Christ. Here's why it is imperative that we get this. Without a deep grasp of our position in Christ because of the gospel, what we tend to do is think that salvation depends upon other things, okay? That would be for, for the non-Christian, okay? That it's not in Christ. It's a, I, I got to be somebody good or do some good things. But even once you become a Christian, without a deep grasp on your identity in Christ, what, what you tend to do is believe that your happiness, your well-being, and your blessing comes from things you do rather than who you are in Christ. So that, that, that puts us on the rat wheel, of Christian life on the rat wheel. Okay, I got to do better. I, I got to perform better. Gosh, I haven't done well as a Christian this week. God's going to be mad at me. God's not going to bless me. I'm not going to have happiness. I'm not going to find true meaning all because you're a cheese ball. It's true that we are cheese balls more so than we ever imagined. But what is now ultimately true is that we are children of God in Christ We are united inextricably, cannot be separated from Christ. We're in this thing together and we belong to him. Therefore, the issue of the meaning of life is settled. The issue of happiness and blessing is settled because they are no longer dependent upon us. They're solely pinned, all of our hopes and dreams, on the person of Christ. If you don't get that, then you will desperately try to build your identity on lesser things, which will lead to idolatry, which will lead to brokenness. So we must get that. 
We were previously defined by what we did or didn't do, succeeded in doing or failed to do. We have a whole new identity, children of God in Christ, united with Christ, clothed in Christ, united with one another in Christ, belonging to Christ. So much so that Jesus himself said, in speaking to the Father in John 17, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us. May they be in us. In the most real way, this is the most real thing in your life. And in fact, the perception of self and life should look like this, okay? Here's, here's right Christian identity. The circle is representing Christ, and you are in there. The smaller circle is self, but self is a smaller circle. You are in Christ. Christ is all. He's the big circle, right? Our, what, what's your worldview? Jesus. Well, can you elaborate on that? Jesus. Okay, got it. Christ. And then we are in Christ. There is no self apart from Christ for the Christian. We're to locate ourselves in Christ as opposed to, in all humility, what most of you are doing, which is this. Self is a big circle. Christ is in there, but the big circle, the greatest concern for you is self. So the largest determining factor of your identity is what self does well, or, or perhaps negatively what self failed to do well. But Christ is just in there somewhere. It, it's, it's embedded in our Christian grammar, right? We say this, oh, I invited Jesus into my heart. Oh, how nice of you. Oh, how sweet. But, but, but it kind of, it, it can give us a wrong idea, right? I invited Jesus into my heart, my corazón. Your, your heart's only that big. I gave him this little part. Now he's in there. I'm, I, I'm me. My life is about me, but I, I got Jesus there and he, he's going to help make me a better person. That's just not Christianity. This is not what the Bible teaches. True identity is Christ is all. And whatever we are is shaped and formed by Christ and we are in him rather than just merely having him as a component of our lives. Let, let, let's think a little bit more about that idea of being united with Christ that Paul brings up here. Paul explains it further as putting on Christ like putting on clothes. What helps us understand this is to know that in the prevalent ancient cultures that the New Testament was dealing with, right? The, the Jewish culture, the Roman culture, and the Greek, the Greek culture, there were sort of clear lines of demarcation of going from childhood to adulthood, Okay, more so than in our culture. We live with our parents till we're 25. Nobody even thinks anything about it. Who knows when you actually transition? Some of you are married and you still haven't transitioned. <laughs> Ancient cultures were a little bit more thoughtful about it. For example, in the Jewish culture, at the age of 13, a, a, a Jewish male became a man. He became a son of the law at the age of 13. And it was clear, it was a line of demarcation. He wasn't necessarily responsible to his father anymore. He was responsible to God, before God. Okay, he crossed into manhood, and everybody knew that. In the uh, Greek culture, at the age of 18, the males would cut off their hair, which had grown long by then, and offer it to the gods, saying, look, I'm, I'm different now. Okay, I'm not a child anymore. I've left behind childish things, cut off the hair, and, and, and offered it to God. 
there's a clear line of demarcation. Everybody can see. Oh, you're man now. Okay? I don't know what they did for women, but it's a different culture. In, in the Roman culture, a couple things would happen. One is somewhere between the ages of 14 and 17, they had a little more leeway, a little more flex there. Somewhere between the ages of 14 and 17, Roman children would offer their toys to the Greek god Apollo or the Roman god, whoever it was. But they would offer their toys to some god saying, I'm, I'm leaving behind childish things. Paul invokes that imagery, right, in Corinthians. Leaving behind childish things, but, but more poignantly what they would do is there was a certain toga that young Roman males wore that had a purple stripe on it. When they went through the ceremony, they would take that toga off and they would put on the toga that all the adults wore. And so now the whole world saw, oh, there's, there's a clear line of demarcation now. You're not identified among the children anymore. You're identified squarely, clearly. We can see it as an adult. This is what Paul is touching on as he mentions baptism in verse 27. That it's this clear line of demarcation which speaks of our union with Christ. It can be spoken of like putting on Christ as if we're putting on clothes. We understand that we are children of God by faith, inwardly and truly, but in baptism, outwardly and visibly. Baptism is this clear, visible, public line of demarcation that says the old identity, the old me done away with, new identity, new me. Look, I'm different, been baptized. I'm putting on Christ. Think about that concept, putting on Christ and the imagery that that invokes. Putting on Christ like clothing. What can we say about clothing? The first thing that's really obvious about clothing is that clothing identifies us with certain groups, doesn't it? It just does. You know it does. Like if you're a young, cool male right now, you wear a flannel, period. (laughs) End of story. Or a black V-neck. Those are your choices. And everybody knows if you have flannel, oh, you're one of them. Okay, identify. Your clothing identifies you. Our worship team today, all the boys on the worship team, except for me, were all wearing Converse Chuck Taylors. All of them. Every one of them. They didn't plan it. It's just this identity thing. Like, okay, I'm, I'm part of you because close. Some of you have collars on and preppy things and eyes out. I'm looking at you guys. I'm like, okay, you belong with you. Come over here and you guys should hook up and see each other at home group. And you're obviously of the same ilk. And right, clothing does that for us. The idea of putting on Christ is that we would purposefully and once and for all be identified with him. We've put him on. That's our clothing. That's our covering. We are identified with Christ and therefore with one another. So that the previous things that separated us, shirts with collars, flannels, Chuck Taylors, whatever they were, they don't separate us anymore because we all have Christ on. And that's the defining element of our existence. We have put on Christ. Your clothes identify you with a certain group. We're identified with Christ. And so with one another, right? When we came to Christ, we also got his whole family with him. We're identified with one another. The second thing that clothing does is clothing, quite honestly, covers all of our flaws. Doesn't it? I mean, yeah, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Oh my goodness. See, she's praising the Lord, but but other people that have less flaws, they wear less clothes, right? (laughs) They have less flaws, so they're just like, what? What? I'm I'm hot. I don't need clothes. (laughs) So clothing 
thankfully covers all of our flaws. Our flaws, our sins are many. Christ covers them all. It's a perfect clothing. Covers them all. We're no longer identified or seen by our flaws and our failures. We're now identified by and we see each other in Christ. That's how we need to see each other in Christ. Furthermore, clothing is something that we put on every day, right? You, you want to put it on before you leave home. Anybody ever have those dreams where you, you forgot to put on clothes and you're in a public place? How many of you have those dreams? Okay, yeah, most of you. I have them all the time. I don't know why. I need help, but I went to, um, I went to public school at Maine School right across the street here from our Carpinteria campus, and I still have dreams that I'm in my fourth grade class butt naked. Like I still have that dream and I'm sitting there at my desk just thinking, maybe nobody knows, but why am I here naked? And just that feeling of just horror. I forgot to put on clothes. So we have a fear of that. So we make sure that we put on clothes every single day. Put on Christ every single day. Wake up and say, who am I? I'm a child of God in Christ. I am united with Christ. I have put on Christ. I belong to Christ. Put him on every day. Final thing we'll say about clothes is that once we put them on, they're there and they're closer to us than than anything else, right? By definition. And what that does then is, is to a large degree, it shapes how we feel, don't they? That's why we wear favorite outfits. That's why you guys see me just wearing the same shirts in the pulpit week in and week out, right? I I only have a few. It's because those are the shirts that that I feel good in. And they're close and they just, you know, whatever. And and so the clothing that you have on shapes the way that you feel. You know, you might wear a certain thing because it makes you feel comfortable. Other things you're wearing, you're like, gosh, I feel frumpy in this. I feel chubby in this. So you don't want to wear it, right? It just hangs in the closet forever. Certain other things make you feel sexy right? Certain other things make you feel smart or, or educated, whatever. Our clothes to a large degree, how close they are to us, even the way that they feel and how they fit us, they shape how we feel. And how you feel shapes how you behave. Don't, don't, don't deny that. How you feel shapes how you behave and so it shapes how you treat other people. We put on Christ. I belong to him. I'm united with him. I'm a child of God in him. That is supposed to affect the way you feel. And that will affect the way that we behave in the way that we treat one another because Christ fits perfectly. It's like the favorite jacket. Just, oh yeah, put that thing on. I'm like, what's up? It's feeling and looking good. Put Christ on. It affects everything about your life. Ephesians 4 would say this. I'll just read it to you. Verse 21. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes and put 
on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy in Christ, our identity in Christ, so that we now see ourselves as existing in him. In every other way that we previously saw ourselves, both positive, gosh, I've achieved a lot, I've got all this money, I've done all these things, I have all this recognition, and negative, I failed a lot, and I'm not anywhere, and I have this, these wounds, and I was abandoned. All those things that previously would have shaped our identity are now abandoned and completely subservient to who we are in Christ. For ourselves and for each other. Church, don't put anything on one another other than Christ. Stop putting trips on each other. Don't, don't, don't put stuff on each other. Except for Jesus. Because when we do that, then we force each other to try to draw identity from other places. We got to help each other with our identities in Christ. Otherwise, we're trying to draw our identities from our heritage, Jew and Gentile, our gender, man man or woman, our pedigree, haves or have not, slaves or frees. Paul says Jesus is our identity. And one of the ways that we really experience that is by casting that on one another, putting it on one another. I see you in Christ. But, But my flaws and my failures and my hurts, no, no, man. I'm going to see you in Christ. And I, I want you to see me in Christ. Man, that changes the world. We had something happen here at the Carpinteria campus a few weeks ago. It was toward the beginning of our study in Galatians. And a, a really neat thing is happening here at the Carpinteria campus. There's a wonderful couple in our church, Amy and Lalo Vital. And they've started a Bible study in our church for non-English speaking Hispanics in Carpentry, and it's going wonderfully. They've got a lot of people coming, a lot of people have gotten saved, and then those people are wanting to, to come to church. They're coming to a Bible study here midweek, and, but they're wanting to come and experience Sunday mornings, which is just like the most amazing thing, because I don't know if you've noticed, some of you don't think this, but I preach in English, and they, they don't necessarily understand that much English, but they, they, they want to come. In fact, last Sunday, a woman in the front row, barely spoke any English, got saved yeah. on Sunday. And yeah, praise God. And she told Pastor G, who also knows very little English. <laughs> she told Pastor G, I couldn't, really, I couldn't really understand very much, but I understood enough to know I need Jesus. And she got saved right there. So there's this really cool thing happening. We're praying as a church, trying to figure out what do we do with this. But here's what happened a few weeks ago. One of those gentlemen that had been coming to the Bible study wanted to come on Sunday mornings, had been invited and came walking up toward the front door with his Bible and some lady in our church said to him, hey, I I don't think you're in the right place. I don't think this is a church for you. That is an outright denial of who Christ is and what Christ has done. That is an utter failure to live the gospel as God's people. There's no longer English speaking and non-English speaking, white, Hispanic, So Paul's trying to bring this out, how, how, how we're, we're one in Christ because we're all children of God. And so as we dip into chapter four, he's, he's going to explain, he's going to use an analogy to talk about us being children of God 
only in Christ and how that makes us heirs. And you'll remember last week in uh, chapter three, the preceding verses to those which we read today, he was talking about the law being like a taskmaster, right? Who, in, in that, those Greek households and in Roman households and the Roman Greco culture, the guardian would, would watch the kids and, and be in charge of some of the raising of the kids for the father, the head of the household. But he also kept the kids to a large degree from intimacy and communication with the father. Okay, he was kind of like a, a liaison, a mediator. And so Paul used that to explain, look, the law is like that. It, it shows us our sin and our need. And so it, it, it shows us that we need Christ, but it also causes us to feel alienated from God because it shows us our sin and our need. So Paul's still, still now discussing how the law does that, but how Christ saves us as we get to chapter four. He says, think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians, right? There's that idea, until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. Okay, so we were looking forward to Christ's coming, who is our inheritance, right, as promised to Abraham. But under the law, even though that's coming, there, there, there was no rights. There's no, there no access. We were still under this guardian. And it's like everything was ours. But if we miss Christ, we, we miss that. When Christ comes, we get that. It talks about being slaves to the basic spiritual principles of the world. That phrase in Greek is difficult. Um, Bible translators and scholars argue about what it means. But for our purposes today, we'll just say the idea is this, that before Christ, whatever else we served, drew identity from, trusted in, whether it was in those, that phrase can mean all these things, idols, false gods, demons, wrong understandings of the workings of life and the world, all of those things kept us from relating to God rightly. The only way that we relate to God rightly is through Christ. Because as it says in verse four, when the right time came, God sent his son born of a woman subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. We were slaves to the law, slaves to the sin. Jesus redeemed us, bought us out of slavery to those things on the cross and allowed us to be adopted as true children by God. Okay, adoption and redemption. Both of those are functions of salvation. We have been bought out of slavery and brought into sonship. In the Greek, it's the word son. They didn't use gender specific language there, but it also makes it a little more pungent because in that culture, women were never heirs. Only sons were heirs. So when he says in this passage, and ladies, you too are sons of God. He's just communicating the most profound way that you have an inheritance with God, that all things that are Christ's are yours. It's a big deal for women in that culture who never expected to inherit anything. Okay, but the New Living Translation brings it into the word children. The idea being though that we have freedom from liability and we've been given rights as children, redeemed and adopted. Christ removed our legal status as enslaved and indebted sinners and changed it to beloved and deserving children. 
And that great exchange that happened on the cross was that our record of wickedness was transferred to Christ and his record of righteousness was transferred to us. Okay, justification has both of those things in mind. Justification is that by which we are both declared innocent even though we're guilty and treated excellent even though we're unworthy. It's both of those things and we must understand that it's both, that the transfer of our sins to Jesus is only part of what happens on the cross. Then there is the transfer of his righteousness, his perfection before God to us his rights and his privileges given to us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in him. To recognize only the removal of sins, as many people do, is to only half be saved by grace. That's only half of the picture. See, a lot of Christians think this way. They think, okay, there, there's a slate, you know, and the slate's been wiped clean. Praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus. And that's true, right? There's a slate, a record of my sins. Isaiah 65 talks about that. Malachi talks about that. Book of Revelation talks about it. A record of my sins. And the slate has been wiped clean. Thank you, Jesus. And so now we think I get a second chance. What, what could a second chance in a clean slate mean other than, well, I better fill the slate up with good things, That is not Christianity. That is the idea of how to be a good Christian and other religious nonsense. That is not Christianity. Christianity is not the slate was right clean. Now you better fill it up with good things. No. It's that the flipping slate was nailed to the cross, taken out of the way moved as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea. It is no more. And then the perfect record of Christ's life and standing is given to us. There is nothing to fill up. There is nothing to fill up. How God feels about you has nothing to do with your endeavor to refill some slate you've imagined. It's nailed to the cross, taken out of the way, buried in the deepest sea. And then Christ's perfect record is given to you. You are in Christ. So that when we get to heaven, it's not like we're just going to barely slide in. See, that's how a lot of Christians live their life. They're like, yeah, I'm saved. I know I'm saved, but gosh, I'm such a cheeseball now. And I don't think God's going to abandon me, but I'm just barely going to slide in there. Like Peter's going to be at the gate and be like, oh, you? Wow, Jesus, really? I mean, this guy? And Lord's going to be like, yeah, I know, but yeah, let him in. You're just going to kind of slide in by the hair of your chinny chin chin. Listen, that, that is not how it will work. God only identifies you as being in his holy, perfect, righteous son. So that when you arrive at heaven, you are a hero. Because Christ is the hero of everything and you are in him. So that the father treats you how he treats his perfect and righteous son. So that when you get to heaven, 
It is not begrudgingly. It is in the midst of a party and a celebration and running to the Father's arms in perfect love. That is the only way. That is the only way to understand the gospel. Is it because we are now in Christ, everything that's true about Christ is true about us. Most poignantly, God loves you like he loves his son. Jesus is the one who said that in John 17, 23. He said, Father, let the world know that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Let the world know. And so we're able to stop thinking about God as a boss, right? And, and, And we don't see the law as 613 items in a job description, and if we're, if we're doing good at the job description, then our boss might be kind of happy with us. If we're doing poorly, then he's sad with us. No, 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 no. He's a father who's just like silly enamored with you because you're in Christ. You ever seen a new dad with a new baby? Especially a little girl? Just silly. Just... <laughs> because you are in Christ. Now, the job of the Holy Spirit then the job of the Holy Spirit is to make these doctrinal truths real and experienced in our lives, felt in our lives. Next verse, verse six. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave. You're God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic diminutive of father. It means daddy. Papa, daddy. Nobody ever talked about the God of Israel that way until Jesus came. And then Jesus uses phraseology, Abba, Father. When Paul here is saying that we're to use that phraseology, he's saying, that because of the cross, we have legally inherited all the relational rights of Christ before God. Christ was the only one ever to come to the righteous, holy, awesome God of the universe and say, Pops, Daddy. And now because of our identity with Christ, we're invited into that sort of relationship. And it's not, it's not just words. It's, it's experience of the Father's perfect love. And the job of the Holy Spirit is to help us to experience that truth. It's one thing to hear and believe that objective truth, but it's another thing to feel and experience it and so be shaped and changed by it. These verses are talking about God's provision in the Holy Spirit for us to experience his love as children. Christ has brought us to God. The Spirit helps us experience God as Father. Some of you, you didn't have fathers. So this is, this is new, new territory for you. You, you. you never said, Daddy. Let the Holy Spirit take you into that new territory. Don't be ruled by the disappointments of your past. God is a father to the fatherless. Let the Holy Spirit take you into an experience of that for the first time maybe. Daddy, 
Others had fathers for whom you, you never measured up. You were never good enough. And he treated you that way. Your heavenly father is nothing like your earthly father. He loves you like he loves his son. To imagine that God the Father loves Christ in any way that is less than perfect and wild and it's insane would be foolishness. There's nothing like your earthly fathers. It says there that then the Spirit is in us, the Holy Spirit is in you, Christian, right now, working in you to cause you to call out Daddy. Not the words, the, the, the experience of, of Daddy. That phrase, call out, in the Greek, it, the word means a loud cry of passionate feeling. A loud cry of passionate feeling. So, all those lame ways of communicating with God that you do, those, those pre-rehearsed prayers, those carefully chosen words, those, those carefully thought through postures, all that BS is done with. It's done with. It's not who he is to us. He's daddy. Kids don't talk to daddy that way. You know, kids talk to daddy like, like Daisy deals with me every day when I come home from work. Daisy is waiting. She's either in the street and she puts on an outfit for me. She's either in the street or she's on the porch or she's on the couch doing her schooling or she's at the table eating because she eats a ton. But she's waiting. And whether it's just my car or walking through the door, when I come near, she says, Daddy! And always without fail, she comes to me. And there is never, ever any hesitation in her because she knows that I will wildly reciprocate the passion of her cry of daddy. I will always embrace her. It does not matter to me if she's been a good girl or a naughty girl that day. That is not the issue. That is no longer the issue in Christ. The issue is that he will always receive you as daddy. And so with confidence, like a child, because of our adoption and our position in Christ, we run to him and our hearts in that nearness say, daddy. Christ, through his work on the cross and our faith in him, changes our position. But the Spirit is working in you to change your passion, to give you a passion for God, not just a position before God. Through the Son, we become God's children legally, receiving a new status. But through the Spirit, we become God's children experientially, experientially. Don't sell yourself short on this. The Spirit of God wants you to know the love of God. In fact, Romans 5.5 says this, We know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. The work of the Spirit is based upon the work of the Son, but the Spirit is wanting to give us a profound, subjective experience based on the objective truth of what Christ has done. Spirit's job is to take doctrinal truths and make them alive in our hearts. Okay, so some of you are saying, that sounds good. I, I, I want that. How do I do that? 
two quick points of suggestion. Number one, begin to, in your life, in your days, study, reflect upon, meditate on the work of the Son on your behalf. Think upon, study, meditate on the work of the Son on your behalf while simultaneously asking the Spirit to make it real. Because the work of the Spirit is always based on the work of the Son. Think deeply on the work of the Son, the finished work of the cross on your behalf, asking the Spirit to make it real to you. And then secondly, daily, begin to relate to God as perfect father. Let his love overcome your fatherlessness. You now have a father. Let his perfect love overcome the wounds from never measuring up to your other father. Repent of seeing him as a boss and a taskmaster who may or may not be somewhat pleased with you. Daily begin to relate to him as a father who is ultimately and wildly enamored with you through the Holy Spirit. Seek the person of the Holy Spirit to work in your life. Tim Keller would end it for us by giving us this advice. It is as we ponder doctrinal truth worshipfully, as we ponder doctrinal truth worshipfully, continually applying what we read, that the work of the Spirit occurs. It is as we reflect and study and work through and rejoice in the truths of God's word that the Holy Spirit begins to make them thrilling, melting, disturbing, healing, and shining. Holy Spirit, come. Do this in our hearts. We want the Abba experience. We want the daddy experience. We want you to come and pour the love of the Father abroad in our hearts. For some people, the first time, as they'll just repent of their sins now and trust in what you did on the cross and come to you in faith, Christ, flood them, Holy Spirit, with the love of the Father. Some of us, we believe these things for a long time, but we haven't experienced it. Holy Spirit, come and melt, disturb, heal, and shine in our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit. If you need help with these things, prayer team will be up to my left here at the Carpinteria campus since it's crowded over there. These people on the carpets will make some room if you want to come and get on your face. The Father's seeking those who would worship him in spirit and truth. You feel far from God? Come get on your face. Let him find you. Father wants to lavish his love on you.